Welcome to the 235th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a special memorial episode dedicated to the 10th anniversary of the March 11 triple disaster in Japan, the Great East Japan earthquake, the tsunami that followed, and the disaster of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. My guests today are Sulfakar Amir, Kota Juraku, Kyoko Sato, and Ryuma Shineha. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 8, 2021, there are 2,592,688 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 8,196 Eight, excuse me, let me start that again. There are 8,196 deaths from COVID-19 in Japan, 524,979 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States, and 29 deaths reported from COVID-19 in Singapore. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is COVID and Suicide, Japan's Rise, A Warning to the World. This was written by Rupert Wingfield Hayes and appeared in BBC News. This was published on February 18th, 2021. In 2020, for the first time in 11 years, suicide rates in Japan went up. Most surprising, while Male suicides fell slightly. Rates among women surged nearly 15%. In one month, October, the female suicide rate in Japan went up by more than 70% compared with the same month in the previous year. What's going on and why does the COVID pandemic appear to be hitting women so much worse than men? Meeting face to face with a young woman who has repeatedly tried to kill herself is a troubling experience. It was the setting for this article reported by Rupert Wingfield Hayes. It has given him new respect for those who work in suicide prevention. The setting is a walk-in center in Yokohama's red light district run by a suicide prevention charity called The Bond Project. Across the table is a 19-year-old woman with bobbed hair and she sits motionless, quietly. Without any emotion, she starts to tell me her story. It started when she was 15, the reporter said. Her older brother began violently abusing her. Eventually, she ran away from home, but it didn't end the pain and the loneliness. Ending her life seemed the only way out. From about this time last year, I've been in and out of the hospital many times, she said. I tried many times to kill myself, but I couldn't succeed. So now I guess I have given up trying to die. 
What stopped her was the intervention of the Bond Project. They found her a safe place to live and began giving her intensive counseling. Jun Tachibana is the founder of the Bond Project. She's a tough woman in her 40s with relentless optimism. When girls are in real trouble and in pain, they really don't know what to do, she says. We're here, ready to listen to them, to tell them we are here with you. Ms. Tachibana says COVID seems to be pushing those who are already vulnerable closer to the edge. She describes some of the harrowing calls her staff have received in recent months. We hear lots of, I want to die and I have no place to go, she says. They say, it is so painful, I'm so lonely, I want to disappear. For those suffering physical or sexual abuse, COVID has made the situation much worse. A girl I talked to the other day said she is getting sexually harassed by her father, Ms. Tachibana tells me. But because of COVID, her father is not working so much and is at home a lot, so there's no escape from him. If you look at previous times of crisis in Japan, such as the 2008 banking crisis or the collapse of Japan's stock market and property bubble in the early 1990s, the impact was largely felt by middle-aged men. Large spikes were seen in male suicide rates. But COVID is different. It is affecting young people, and in particular, young women. The reasons are complex. Japan used to have the highest suicide rate in the developed world. Over the last decade, it has had great success in reducing suicide rates by around a third. Professor Michiko Ueda is one of Japan's leading experts on suicide. She reports how shocking it's been to witness the sharp reverse in the last few months. This pattern of female suicides is very, very unusual, she says. I've never seen this much of an increase in my career as a researcher on this topic. The thing about the coronavirus pandemic is the industries hit most are industries staffed by women, such as tourism and retail and the food industries. Japan has seen a large rise in single women living alone, many of them choosing that over marriage, which entails quite traditional gender roles still. Professor Ueda says young women are also far more likely to be in so-called precarious employment. A lot of women are not married anymore, she says. They have to support their own lives and they don't have permanent jobs. So when something happens, of course, they are hit very, very hard. The number of job losses among non-permanent staff are just so, so large over the last eight months. One month really stands out. In October of 2020, 879 women killed themselves in Japan. That's more than 70% higher than the same month in 2019. Newspaper headlines sounded the alarm. Some compared the total number of suicides by men and women in October 2,199 to the total number of deaths in Japan from coronavirus up to that point, 2,087. Something particularly strange was happening. On the 27th of September last year, a very famous and popular actress named Yuko Takuechi was found dead at her home. It was later reported that she had taken her own life. Yasuyuki Shimizu is a former journalist who now runs a nonprofit organization, an NPO, dedicated to combating Japan's suicide problem. From the day the news of a celebrity suicide is reported, the number of suicides increases and stays that way for about 10 days, he says. From the data, we can see that the suicide of the actress on the 27th of September it led to an extra 207 female suicides in the next 10 days. If you look at the data for suicides by women around the same age as Yuko Takuechi, the statistics are even more stark. Women in their 40s were most influenced out of all of the age groups, Mr. Shimizu says. For that group, the suicide rate more than doubled. 
Other experts agree that there is a very strong connection between celebrity suicides and an immediate uptick in suicides in the days following. This phenomenon is not unique to Japan, and it's one reason why reporting on suicide is so difficult. In the immediate aftermath of a celebrity suicide, the more it is discussed in the media and on social media, the greater the impact on other vulnerable people. One of the NPO's researchers is Mai Suganuma. She is herself a victim of suicide. When she was a teenager, her father took his own life, and now she helps to support the families of others who have killed themselves. And just as COVID is leaving relatives unable to grieve for those who have succumbed to the virus, so it is making life for the families of suicide victims much more difficult. When I talk to the family members, their feeling of not being able to save the loved one is very strong, which often results in them blaming themselves, my Suganuma says. I too blamed myself for not being able to save my father. Now they're being told they must stay at home. I worry the feelings of guilt will grow stronger. Japanese people don't talk about death to begin with, she says. We do not have a culture to talk about the suicides. Japan is now in a so-called third wave of COVID infections, and the government has ordered a second state of emergency. It's likely to be extended well into February. This story was reported in February. More restaurants and hotels and bars are closing their doors. More people are losing their jobs. For Professor Ueda, there is another nagging question. If this is happening in Japan, with no strict lockdowns and relatively few COVID deaths, then what is happening in other countries where the pandemic is much worse? Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and uh, I have a real all-star cast to speak with today. Let me introduce them to you. Sulfakar Amir is an associate professor of science, technology, and society and a faculty member in sociology, in the sociology program at the School of Social Sciences in the Nanyang Technological University of Singapore. He has conducted research on technological nationalism, development, and globalization, nuclear politics, risk and disaster, design studies, cities and infrastructures, and resilience. He's the author of The Technological State in Indonesia, the Co-Constitution of High Technology and Authoritarian Politics, which appeared with Rutledge in 2012, and the editor of the excuse me, the Socio-Technical Constitution of Resilience, a new perspective on governing risk and disaster, which appeared with Paul Grave in 2018. Aside from being a scholar, Amir is a documentary filmmaker. His latest film is Healing Fukushima, which chronicles the role and experiences of medical experts in Fukushima dealing with radiation hazard in the aftermath of the nuclear disaster. Kota Juraku is a professor at Tokyo Denki University in Japan. He has worked on sociological studies of the governance of risky technologies and the social learning process from major technological failures. Before joining Tokyo Denki University, he worked at the Department of Nuclear Engineering and Management at the University of Tokyo from 2008 to 12. And during that time, he spent over a year at the Department of Nuclear Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley as a visiting scholar. He received his PhD from the University of Tokyo for research on the social decision-making process of nuclear and other energy issues. As a sociologist of science and technology, he's conducted participant observation of nuclear experts' responses to the Fukushima nuclear disaster, both in Japan and in the United States. 
Kyoko Sato is Associate Director of the Program in Science, Technology, and Society at Stanford University. Her research examines techno-scientific governance in Japan and the United States. She's currently co-editing a collected volume with Soraya Budia and Bernadette Binsad Vincent called Living in a Nuclear World from Fukushima to Hiroshima, an interdisciplinary post-Fukushima reflection on the development of the global nuclear order. She's conducted fieldwork in various areas affected by nuclear technology to examine the dynamics and relationships among global and national nuclear governance expertise and democratic citizenship. And she's part of a comparative COVID response project, an ongoing study on the pandemic response of 16 countries. She's working as a journalist. She worked as a journalist, excuse me, in Tokyo before pursuing her PhD in sociology from Princeton. University And my fourth guest is Ryuma Shaneha. Ryuma is an associate professor at the Research Center on Ethical, Legal, and Social Issues, the ELSI Research Center at Osaka University. He's also a specialist in science and technology studies and science policy studies. He received his PhD from Kyoto University. His current research work is in understanding agendas on responsible research and innovation, particularly in sectors of emerging science and practice to upstream engagement on these agendas. In addition to this work, after 311, he started research on the media ecosystem and social structural issues concerning 311 with his collaborators. Let me welcome Ryoma Shineha, Sofakar Amir, Kyoko Sato, and Kota Jiraku. Thank you all so much for making time to join me today on COVID Calls. Happy Please to be here. So it's a return visit for Sulfakar and for Kyoko, and I'm glad to welcome Ryuma and, and Kota to the discussion. And I want to start the way I usually do, just to find out um, where you're calling from and how the pandemic situation is is looking there today. And Kota, let me start with you, please. Yes, uh, I'm calling from Ibaraki Prefecture. Uh, it's nearby uh, the. Uh, Metropolitan Tokyo uh, area, and uh, uh, different than Tokyo and other the satellite prefectures, uh, we just lifted the uh, state of emergency. It's not a national one, but the prefectural state of emergency uh, two weeks ago, and uh, we have the uh, twenty of thirty new cases of infection <clears throat> in this three million uh, population prefecture. So the situation is relatively now the stabilized, but uh, still uh, we are witnessing the uh, much tougher situation in Tokyo. So the people is just uh, still limited their behavior, not the, uh, going to some the hobbies or the they are different from the playing the in the parks with the kids or something. So that is the current situation in my area. You have access to a uh, vaccine at this time, Kota? No, though. we will start the vaccination program uh, next month mm-hmm. from just the elderly people. That we are now doing the program for medical uh, professionals, but the uh, uh, supply is still very limited. The, today, the, I had a news show article that the false uh, import uh, uh, batch of the vaccine from Europe just arrived at the Narita airport. But uh, we just started the program. Our generation, uh, no one knows when uh, it became available for us. 
Sofakar, let me bring you in with the same question where you're calling from and, and what's the situation look like there today? Yeah, thank you, Scott. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this uh, incredible channel again. So I'm calling from uh, NTU campus, which is located in the Jurong uh, district, uh, west part of Singapore. Uh, the situation of COVID-19 in Singapore uh, can be said uh, very, very stable. Uh, we have uh, zero infection cases for the past, no, I mean, uh, most, most, most of the time since maybe uh, uh, six months ago. Uh, well, we, we, we do have some uh, 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 a surge of infection cases last year from March to, uh, to May. But, and then uh, Singapore went to a lockdown for two months. And, and uh, after that, we uh, went through this, you know, safe opening in our faces. Uh, so now we are in, this, uh, in the phase three, uh, where uh, basically, uh, you know, life looks to be, you know, normal, but not as normal as before in the COVID, of course. People still wearing masks. Uh, and there's a protocols that you have to uh, do before entering, you know, any buildings. And you need to bring this small device called uh, Trace Together. Uh, this will mm. uh, allow people, allow the governments to trace if there's any infection cases, you know, emerge uh, in the community. Uh, but so far, I think, you know, uh, everyone seemed to be, uh, uh, seemed to be happy with the situation. Uh, in in NTU, we already conducted you know uh, in-person classes uh, uh, from uh, last January, although there's a limit to uh, to do that up to 50 people. So yeah, Singapore is uh, being held up as a sort of world model um, for how one could pursue infection control. Sulfacar, you wrote a really uh, tremendous essay for the SSRC Disaster Studies series in which you looked at not just the case of Singapore, but of the migrant workers there in Singapore. Could you say a little bit about, um, just as we're getting an update of things there, what's been the health situation in that community within Singapore? So if you look at the number of cases in Singapore uh, from last year, from uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you might be surprised to find that there is a f almost 60,000 cases. Uh, but 97% of the cases are uh, migrant workers who live in a very, you know, a, a cramped, you know, a, a, a living areas in the dorms. Uh, and it was something that uh, that seemed to be, you know, uh, unexpected by the government, uh, despite, you know, the, 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 prepare, the level of preparedness that the, gov the Singapore government has already uh, built up before the pandemic. Uh, this is something that they didn't really, you know, uh, uh, see it as a potential uh, risk. But then when it happens, you know, it spreads very, very rapidly among the migrant workers who live in the dorms, uh, who, have, who have to share uh, you know, a uh, 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 bathroom with uh, 12 other migrant workers. Uh, so it's very crammed, it's very crowded. Uh, but then uh, I think uh, the situation was uh, was uh, under control uh, a few weeks after it was detected. And uh, and 40, so there, there were about 400, uh, yeah, no, 450 uh, migrant workers 
uh, were have to put under lockdown in the dorms for about you know three months. Uh, uh, but then I think uh, uh, they they already clean up you know the area uh, and all migrant workers are are uh, free of infection. Uh, so and and they they went back to work a few months ago. So the situations uh, with the migrant workers is is is, is very very you know safe. Thanks for that update. Let me let me bring Kyoko in now. Um, Kyoko, thanks for coming back on COVID calls. We talked back in August. It's great to see you again. Where are you calling from, and what's it looking like there? Uh, thank you, Scott, for having me again. Um, I'm calling from San Francisco, uh, where it is relatively under control compared to other cities in the United States. Um, and the vaccine is rapidly, you know, basically the, being distributed. So I already know a whole bunch of people who are either in medicine or education being vaccinated. Um, and a lot of elderly people are like, fully vaccinated already. So I believe that uh, in a week or so, they start opening it to anybody uh, over age 16 uh, with some conditions. So right now they're still focusing on essential workers and then there is controversy. So, you know, if you're in education, you're considered an essential worker, but if you're in college and then teaching something remotely, are you really eligible? So, you know, so there's a uh, discussions like that. And then also um, some areas uh, where, I mean, the, the, you know, as you probably heard that, you know, that a lot of the information is being shared through the websites, which restricts the accessibility to some people. And then they don't really hit some of the, you know, marginalized communities. So there have been some efforts to try to reach those uh, people. Um, but there's, also a scandal of this concierge um, doctor's service called One Medical, uh, who's being accused of uh, basically sh giving shots to families of leadership who are not eligible, which is like a quintessential San Francisco story of, you know, tech startup with this lack of awareness and then, you know, just accumulated wealth and then how people are buying their way into, you know, something like vaccines, which is really outrageous. Um, but there are a lot of awareness uh, about, uh, you know, the, the underserved communities, and then there are much effort to reach those people. So um, it's not normal at all, but I think museums opened, and the, so mm -hmm. things are slowly opening, and people started talking about, what are we going to do when we all get vaccinated? So there's some sense of hope, mm. heavily mixed with caution about we can't just, you know, let the guard down yet. And then there's a lot of like, you know, it's not, it's, you know, even if you're fully vaccinated, wait for another, you know, three weeks or, you know, so there are a lot of, you know, anxiety and hope mixed. Um, but it's very different from, uh, you know, when I talked to my mother in Tokyo, who's was received some notes saying that elderly is going to be, you know, like, like Kota said, they're going to mm -hmm. start on elderly uh, mid next month. So that's where things and, are in San Francisco. And I should just ask how are you doing? Yes, uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, so I had a 
um, months of COVID symptoms last year. And then it's been, actually, I had the, my first symptom was at the, at the end of March. So it's been almost a year. I'm still not 100%. Uh, I think I'm one of those long haulers. So uh, when I, uh, you know, don't have enough sleep and when I have to, I'm overworked, there is a sensation around my lungs that come back so distinct and so menacing. Mm. It's psychologically really scary. And then also I still have a slightly elevated uh, body temperature. And it's like, I can't just, you know, put my finger around like, you know, what is going on? Because I tested negative many times, uh, you know, but the symptoms uh, will keep reappearing I was less intensity now, but for the first six months or so, I was really scared. Like each time I have this, like I would really get wiped out here and there. Yeah. So, so I hear, feel for a lot of people who might have recovered, but yet you know, suffering from those all kinds of after effects. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And um, I'm sorry that you're still Thank you. That. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm I'm doing okay. There are so many people I think who cannot actually work anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but let me bring Ryuma in on this. Um, Ryuma, where are you calling from today, and what is the pandemic situation there? Yeah, and now I'm calling from my home, and uh, I moved to the, my new institution, Osaka University, in last. April. So after that, I moved to uh, from between the Tokyo and Osaka so many times, and so and uh, to be care about the uh, protection of the um, COVID nineteen virus for my family. So and the basic basic situation uh, already that Kota said. So and uh, however, that's the. Fenland uh, right on the train and the Shinkansen Express to the Osaka and uh, back to the Tokyo. And so I thought, yeah, that's the, there are a few people, uh, compared to the previous, uh, before COVID-19. However, that sometimes, uh, particularly morning time, the uh, business persons work, uh, that inside the train, the crowded, the, uh, with the business persons and their, uh, so, uh, particularly the according to the time. So, uh, anyway, that the I feel that the some power of the politics of each autonomies like a big autonomy like a Osaka. So they uh, have own politics and uh, different from the national politics concerning COVID nineteen. So, and uh, yeah, that's the every time I feel this politics. <laughs> Uh, and the power of the politics and under the COVID-19 pandemic, so. Ryoma, are you able to teach your students there uh, on campus or are you all still remote? Yeah, and uh, basically remote. However, that, yeah, the Osaka University and the lecture course were basically on the remote in this year. However, that's uh, maybe next semester will be open to the uh, as the face-to-face -face types the lectures and uh, and i heard some uh, private university of the tokyo also studies the face-to-face -face lectures and in the next semesters so because of that uh, uh, how to say that's the 
some student and the parent of the student uh, anticipate to the start of face-to-face lectures because of the it's better than uh, better uh, they think. However, that's the on the other hand that some students uh, would like to con uh, uh, some students recognize and accept the long point of the remote types that so, so the on-demand or the web style uh, lectures. However, that's such kind of voices was uh, how to say that the, such kind of voices can could uh, has not been examined whether evaluated enough. I hmm. it seems that so. so. Hmm. Well, thank you all for. Um, those updates of where you're calling from. You know, we're going to talk about 311 and Fukushima today, but I did want to just ask a, a couple of follow ups about the, the COVID situation in Japan. Kota, let me bring you in on this. And I know it's a lot to sort of say what's COVID been like in Japan, vast country over this whole year. But I would like to ask you if you can give us a bit of an overview of the way that the government responded, the way the health system has performed. Give us some sense of the COVID experience in Japan over these last 14 months now. Yeah, it's uh, in a sense very interesting, but uh, <clears throat> in other words, uh, it's uh, very contradictive. So the, uh, for example, the uh, death tolls in Japan or the number of the uh, infection cases, uh, these numbers are much lower than uh, the other countries such as United States or the European countries. So in this sense, we are much better than these countries. But uh, on the other hand, the uh, health system, the medical system has overloaded for a year almost. So the uh, many, many medical professionals say that it's the over the capacity and they don't think they can provide uh, uh, the current level of the medical care uh, to Japanese people uh, another the six months or year. Uh, but uh, uh, and uh, we didn't experience any the so-called hard lockdown, just a restriction of the daily behaviors, and the main, all, almost all shops open and uh, uh, children go to school. So in the, some the area of the society, the, just uh, that very normal daily life is going on. But the, on the other aspect of the society, it's almost like a battlefield in the hospital, the, in the government, in, the, in the, some the social welfare facilities and so on. So that, that quite strange combination uh, has been uh, continued in Japan. And the government way of the dealing with this situation is really, really incremental. They, of course, they did many countermeasures, but they, it's just countermeasures, no the big strategy or the no goals and, and no the, some vision to the future, just a, countermeasures, 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 a series of countermeasures. So the, uh, as Luma uh, described it uh, earlier in this session, 
So the depending on the position or the uh, the occupation, the public view, people's view on this situation is really really different. Some people mm. the who is running the some the uh, restaurant or the uh, other the uh, some the tourism business or something, they are about to bankrupt. So that they experiencing very uh, hardship situation. But uh, on the other side, for example, the myself, uh, just a university faculty member, I'm teaching the online, and my university hasn't bankrupted yet, so that we can continue the uh, somehow the the uh, normal life. That is a, a situation in Japan. That this uh, very internal contradiction is now the. Uh, dealt with by each individuals. So mm. that's why the, the Scott the, described the area that many people had to commit suicide because they couldn't sort out such hardship by themselves without the uh, solidarity or the public support and the other the, uh, something social. So the individualized crisis, that is a change in Japan, I think. Mm. Just a quick follow-up, Kota, with you, and then I want to, Ryoma, I want to ask you about the Olympics here in a second, but um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the rural-urban divide is often one that people point to in Japan after 311, for example, as, mm -hmm. as problematic, um, and a lot of sort of rural social problems were exposed people in those areas already knew about them, but maybe the mainstream media discovered these problems um, after 311. Something similar going on with the pandemic as well? Has it been a sort of different experience for people in rural areas of Japan as opposed to Tokyo or Osaka or the other major uh, population centers? Yeah, so uh, it's very difficult to describe because uh, that this point also has uh, the uh, different faces. The, the, from where that you try to uh, shed your light on the situation. So the, in the sense that we that show the, uh, some the, how should I say, uh, very good the, uh, solidarity uh, to help the people experiencing some difficulty. But that on the other hand, the people criticize each other. For example, so the, some people argue that we need the, some the uh, economy uh, boosting the public measures to help the people uh, strongly suffered by the pandemic. But the other people criticize it. It's just waste of taxes. So because uh, myself is also experiencing some difficulty. Why the government supported this particular uh, field uh, of, or the group of people? So that it's uh, uh, destroyed the solidarity of the society. So that it's really, really complicated. And uh, it's very <laughs> difficult to answer you that 311 it was really catastrophic tragedy but in a sense the problem was very uh clear-cutting mm -hmm. edge 
uh, problem. And the people were that, uh, relatively uh, easier to work together. But in this case, what's the problem? What did the, the uh, uh, is uh, desirable uh, support? That uh, such question themselves uh, very very different. The uh, uh, depending on the position of the people. So the yeah, it's really chaotic situation in Japan. I think. Thank you for that for that overview, and I think it once again points to something that um, came up in my conversation uh, last week with Jackie Wernemont and Robert Soden about the problem of counting disasters generally and the problem of counting the pandemic. If you only focus on the death statistics, you're going to miss a lot of misery, um, PTSD, suicide, economic distress, and other things that uh, are obviously critical when we think about the larger impact of a disaster. Ryoma, I want to come to you because early on in this pandemic, Japan was very much in the news uh, in, because of the Olympics, and everybody was wondering, you know, is this a great test? And I think a lot of other countries were looking that they had their own big events scheduled, and they were looking at Japan and saying, how is Japan going to manage this very difficult issue of deciding whether or not to have the Olympics? And I wonder if you could, again, it's a huge story, so I know you can't tell the whole story here, but maybe you could touch a little bit on, on how that decision was made and the sort of Olympics politics that's gone on in the midst of this pandemic um, seems to be, have been quite a challenge for the Japanese government. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, that it's terrible situation, you know. Mm. And uh, however, that I would like to emphasize uh, uh, the rhetoric of the Olympic Oh, uh, in the, after the three uh, March 11 type disaster and in the COVID-19 pandemic situation, the same rhetoric was the uh, Olympic for reconstruction or the, of the reconstruction, something like that. So, and uh, after the uh, March 11 type disasters, the government said that Olympic will be the uh, symbol of reconstruction. And now that uh, also the current government uh, also said that the, uh, we would like to conduct Olympic Tokyo 2020 as a symbol of the uh, overcoming or the deconstruction of the COVID-19, something like that. So, so and such kind of, uh, I feel that's the power of the rhetorical uh, politics. And so, and I, also feel that the, they would like to use the same, same word so that overcoming 311 or the overcoming the COVID-19 so as the uh, power of the politics, uh, politics for uh, as a rhetorical power. So, and uh, another point is that the, uh, it seems, uh, I feel that the, the government tried to use the word to the, uh, oh, uh, how to say that the, uh, Shoot uh, some complaints and the structure issues as uh, a power of rhetoric, happy Olympic, or something like the uh, celebration of capitalism uh, under the celebration of capitalism. So, and uh, anyway, that the uh, it should be. Uh, I would like to emphasize the uh, similar word was uh, has been used 
also both in the uh, asterisk match level and uh, in the current COVID-19 situation. So this, this rhetoric of the constantly overcoming a disaster, um, I'm glad you surfaced that. And it does seem to be very powerful, but at the same time, it's awfully exhausting, isn't it, to be constantly overcoming some sort of a society level disaster? How much is, taste has the public got for this kind of constant overcoming? Yeah, so of course that the uh, situation is very serious. So that the, my I think that Olympic um, will be another the disasters. Uh, that maybe that human made disasters. However, that the, uh, the such kind of uh, media event will be uh, would like to be used uh, as the conceal some tragedy or the uh, complaint and so on as the rhetoric and uh, under the power of the celebration capitalism so and anyway that's uh, it's terrible situation so i think so so uh, before i make a, a a turn and i want to bring kyoko and sulfacar into this a second kota did you want to add anything on the on the Olympics and that tie to 311, because uh, I think it was an interesting point Ryuma made about the sort of the kind of slip from a rhetoric of overcoming Fukushima and 311 kind of seamlessly into overcoming the pandemic. Um, your thoughts on that? I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So the one point is that the who is the decision maker to Olympic game? issue. So the uh, formally speaking, it's an Olympic game uh, organized by uh, IOC and hosted by the city of Tokyo and supported by Japanese national government. So that in this sense, it's not the national event, just Tokyo's event. And uh, uh, the right to decide the if we really have Olympic or not, it's uh, th that the right is uh, belong to uh, IOC, not to the uh, Tokyo government or Japanese government. I think if the, they decided to not refrain from hosting the Olympic game this summer, they might have the big liability because uh, it's a uh, uh, contradict with uh, uh, their. Uh, contract with uh, between the IOC and the Tokyo government. Mm. So the uh, Tokyo's governor and um, our prime minister, they don't want to say something about the possibility to cancel the Olympic game. So the just they just say that we we will do the, our best effort to host the Olympic game as planned. So it's really, really strong uh, political constraint to them. So yeah. it's the uh, very, very uh, uh, strong to spoil the very honest, frank discussion about the way uh, to have Olympic game or the council it. And everyone just seeing the face of the other stakeholders. And no one want to say something absolute or something clear mm. about uh, 
consequences of the Olympic game. But it's already March. Olympic game will start July. Just four months remains. It's almost a deadline. But just uh, people that see <laughs> looking around. It's of the, it's of the itches and then just Amazing. smiling and just uh, uh, still to take the wait and see uh, strategy. So that, that is, uh, uh, it's quite similar to the 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 the, the previous the big the, the experience of the big disasters in Japan, mm -hmm. the like and war, uh, the big the earthquakes and so on, or the the uh, rapid the recession of the economy or something. So, but uh, yeah, that, that's that's current situation in Japan. I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about the experience of the pandemic in Japan. And we're going to turn now to our discussion of um, the 10th anniversary, which hard to believe is here, of the March 11 triple disaster and Fukushima nuclear disaster. And Kyoko, I want to bring you in on this. These are issues you were thinking about before 10 years ago, but um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, with this vantage point, this anniversary vantage point, how that disaster looks different to you now, perhaps, than it did even one year out or, or five years out? I know you're so attentive to time and the weird time that nu the nuclear world makes. Um, take us into your thinking a little bit about this. Um, yeah, uh, I think uh, like many Japanese people, I was just shocked to the core by the accident. I just had no idea this would happen. And then there was so much uh, reflection on what went wrong. As you know, that there are many investigative reports and multiple, you know, like books, films, all kinds of ways we try to understand what happened. And then also how can we make our, you know, society better? This kind of uh, momentum. Uh, I, I mean, I, I started going to Fukushima and then I would meet so many inspiring people, you know, just doing new things, uh, trying to have a new energy systems, uh, trying to have new ways to catch the vulnerable people. It, there has been so much going on in Fukushima. And then uh, it felt there was some sense of like solidarity uh, with, you know, that the people, you know, that everybody had a solidarity and the sympathy and then support of uh, people in Fukushima. And then that's eroded quickly. <laughs> and I think partly because of the economic downturn that continues. But then in the pandemic, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, we can't think about the past disaster. We need to deal with what's going on. And then so that hopefulness and then also this momentum about civic engagement and then this, this societal discussions that, you know, just Cora just mentioned that, you know, the, the government approach is lack in vision. There is very hard to talk about like a big pictures now because they are all constantly dealing with like, you know, putting out the fire that keeps happening as opposed to having a vision. And then 
But earlier, after Fukushima, I my impression was there was a lot of these kind of big visions discussion happening in different sectors in Japan, which felt like, oh, we're going to have a better democracy, which I really don't think that's happened over the last 10 years. Uh, I'm not hopeless. Uh, still, the 10th, 10th anniversaries, I've been to um, almost daily some symposiums or another through Zoom. Uh, Zoom allows me to go to the you know conferences in Berlin to Tokyo to you know every everywhere. So I've been observing, and then there are some hopes, and then, but also, um, you know, I've also been to some of the uh, nuclear industry, you know, the the workshops or the regulators' workshops where they basically feel like we handle Fukushima well. And then we don't have to worry about it. And it's just such a parallel universe now. Um, that whole diversion, that happens slowly. But uh, I feel like just it slipped uh, through our fingers. And then that in some circles, Fukushima is a done story already, which really terrifies me because I know, I mean, 36,000 people still, you know, like evacuating. And then thyroid issue, you know, the cancer issues among children is not settled. And there's so many things going on. And uh, uh, many villages have only 5%, 10% of people return. And then still, like Ryuma said, Olympic, well, Olympic, because, you know, they wanted to, you know, pe have people run through Fukushima. And then, you know, this uh, torch runner, and then, then really connected to the you know, I've actually said, I think Olympics is going to be the time when we show we overcome Fukushima. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so that going back to that. So I, I'm a little, um, I'm actually quite concerned about this, uh, you know, this diversion, like, you know, very divergent views. I want to underline one thing you said, and it resonates with the, um, you know, there's been a lot of 10th anniversary journalism out there. And a piece which I've seen now, in a number of different forms is, well, basically, um, yeah, it was a terrible event, but it really, ultimately, the, the nuclear side of it was overblown. And in fact, this one piece I looked at, and I won't quote the name, and they said, um, you know, really only a handful of people died from that cause. It was the other causes that you should pay, pay attention to. And it's what you just said. It's like a disclosure, getting back to normal, getting the reactors fired back up. Um, and I... So put a pin in that. I mean, I worry about that. And it, it makes me think a lot about what you said a minute ago, but this sort of post Fukushima idea that there would be a sort of um, a democratic moment, uh, citizens. And it happened in a number of different registers. It was citizen science. It was in agriculture. It was in the arts, but it was also in sort of tough, you know, reform, government level, ministerial level reform. You said you're not totally without optimism at this time, but I wanted to, if you could say a little bit more about that part of it, because if it wasn't for reform, what, what has been learned? I think mostly my optimism uh, comes from the, how I've observed these citizens' engagement on expert citizen collaborations and all kinds of ways that uh, people are still trying to remember Fukushima, trying to learn from it. And then there was relentless groups of people who try to work for um, 
you know, better world and then social justice, and then they don't want to forget Fukushima. Yesterday, I observed the, this gathering I wasn't aware of in Kawasaki. In, I didn't know they were, every year they were collecting money and then doing anti-nuclear event, but also let's not forget Fukushima. Let's, you know, that a bunch of people were talking about how they, every year they get children from Fukushima so that, the, you know, they can escape the, you know, higher radiation. So there are all kinds of citizen levels activities that are still going on. It's just that in the, maybe not in the national media or at the government level, things are becoming, uh, you know, slowly forgotten. But there are a lot of people who are still engaged. And then also so many uh, things that we didn't connect before are connected now. So, for instance, all these survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then younger activists are working, they work together to... Uh, you know, realize that the nuclear weapons ban treaty. And then that kind of activity that involves a lot of Japanese lawyers and then, you know, those right. people are continuing those activities. And so I had a, so many inspiring uh, experience with symposiums where really cutting edge, even scientific knowledge about cesiums, you know, the, the so, so those things are actually exchanged among experts and citizens and activists. And then so those were uh, still happening and then going strong. It's just that their influence might not be the way, you know, they were, let's say, eight, nine years ago. But, you know, those people are not giving up, which really was, you know, a hopeful thing to see. Sofakar, let me bring you in. The first time I went to the Fukushima prefecture was with you. And uh, you were... And with Ryuma, and um, it's a longer story that we can tell right now, but it was quite a journey. And uh, we, you and I were both seeing it with sort of outsiders' eyes, but the difference is um, you were making a film. And in fact, you've made two films now about the Fukushima experience. And I just want to make sure that um, people know what those are. One is a shorter film called A Journey to Namie, and the second one is Healing Fukushima. And I, I think people should check those films out. And I, I wonder, as a person who's been so engaged with, in a sense, witnessing what happened there and translating what happened there, how does this anniversary feel to you? And that passage of time of 10 years, um, I wonder sort of some of your thoughts about it. It, at this time? How does Fukushima seem to you now that you've, this amount of time has gone by, but that you've also sort of immersed yourself in it in the, through the making of these films? Uh, thank you for asking that, Scott. Uh, well, my, my experience with Fukushima started with a fair personal uh, experience. Uh, uh, Kota and I went to visit Fukushima Daiichi two years before, uh, you know, the disaster. And when we when inside the facility, uh, me personally, I felt so amazed and very and deeply, deeply impressed uh, as an outsider to see how uh, uh, TEPCO uh, uh, managed the facility in a, a, a almost you know perfect way. At least in my in a point of view at the time, right? 
uh, we were uh, presented with uh, a, a very nice you know, uh, uh, exhibits of the safety systems and were given information about you know, the, the benefits of the, uh, the power plants uh, for the local community as well as for the economy of Japan. Uh, so I was really, really, you know, uh, uh, um, fascinated by that. And especially when we were allowed to enter unit number one, reactor unit number one, to see, you know, uh, with our own eyes, you know, how the, uh, the reactor, you know, uh, was working. Uh, and it was like a surreal experience, <laughs> basically. Uh, uh, and I, I still remember that I still have a vivid memory of that experience getting in, inside the reactor, uh, wearing this, you know, safety suit uh, and looking into, you know, all of those uh, uh, sophisticated control system uh, uh, and, uh, and all of the information that, that we were given seemed to be a very you know, genuine, uh, uh, transparent uh, and, and uh, and very convincing, okay? But then when it happened, <laughs> it suddenly changed the way I see, you know, uh, uh, the facility. Uh, and it is a personal experience that really changed in the way uh, I uh, view, you know, uh, a nuclear industry in Japan. Because before that, uh, I was... Uh, 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 I was really intrigued by how you know the Japanese nuclear industry uh, was able to uh, maintain uh, a, a really you know a high standard of a safety record uh, in their industry, and they're going to import their technology to other countries, including Indonesia, right? So that was my first uh, the original reason why I went to visit you know Fukushima Daiichi with uh, Kota, but after 311. You know, it switched my attentions and 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 uh, my research focus uh, begin begin to focus on nuclear disaster in order to examine what really happens. But one thing that I want to uh, uh, highlight here is that uh, no matter how deep I, I I look at into this you know uh, this uh, uh, this phenomenon, uh, my my view is always from an outsider, right? Uh, it's always and it will remain you know, an outsider point of view uh, because, of course, there are some limitations that I have in understanding, you know, uh, the, uh, the intricate relations between the organizations, the, the local politics and etc. So I try to bring my, uh, uh, my perspective as an outsider to understand, you know, the, what really happens. Uh, and this will be, I think, uh, will be meaningful because, uh, 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 you know, I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at the uh, the the disaster from uh, from a different angle, and and especially when we are now facing with the situation of COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, there's so much you know uh, uh, a parallels that we can draw in understanding what happens in, in uh, 3.11 and what happens now with you know, COVID-19. And one of the, one of the striking difference that we can uh, draw is that, you know, if you look at you know, uh, 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 Fukushima disaster, uh, uh, you can see 
how how small it is, you know, relatively small, how relatively small it is compared to COVID-19 in terms of the impact, in terms of the scale, right? In terms of the of, of the victims affected, of the people uh, affected by, by, by the crisis. When Fukushima happened, we were so shocked because, especially because it happens in a, a, a technologically advanced country, right? And that was my, my, uh, uh, my uh, outsider point of view that really, you know, fascinated me to, to come to Japan to understand, you know, why the disaster happened. But now if you look at, you know, what's, what's happening in the world uh, uh, related to COVID-19, you can see that the, the Fukushima, the scale of Fukushima disasters is much, much smaller because we're talking about a pandemic that, that is affecting the entire world. And this probably, you know, uh, something that will please the nuclear industry because they say, look at that. We actually, what happens just, you know, you know, less, less, less significant compared to the situations that caused by, you know, uh, by, you know, uh, uh, by the virus, right? Uh, but then when you look at from the other side and if you uh, sort of uh, divide the, the crisis into two phases, one is the before and during the, 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 the crisis, and the other phase is the after the, the crisis, then you can find a lot of similarities in terms of the uh, institutional responses, in terms of the lack of expertise and competence in responding to the crisis, mm -hmm. in terms of the lack of coordinations between responsible you know, organizations and institutions, and also a, a, a lack of, uh, of transparency. In, uh, uh, to inform the people what's going on. I think you can see a lot of similarities uh, with uh, between what happened in Fukushima uh, before, during, and after with what happens with pandemic. You can, uh, and, and, and it is, it is, it is, it is strangely similar uh, uh, because you can find that uh, that uh, that many institutions that were that were previously, uh, you know, uh, deemed to be uh, competent, deemed to be uh, 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 qualified in 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 tackling or at least in preventing the crisis from getting you know bigger and bigger, uh, uh, turned out to be uh, to be uh, uh, almost you know dysfunctional uh, in facing. The you know the, the the tremendous scale of the of the uh, pandemic, right? And this is exactly what we what we see happening you know during three eleven uh, the in especially in the critical hours you know uh, when mm. you know, after the after the earthquake erupted and the tsunami you know uh, is coming to hit the uh, uh, the. Uh, the power plan and the response from Tokyo, the government in Tokyo, undermining you know the 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 scale of the situation, the magnitude of the crisis. I think I found it strangely similar to what many governments, especially in Southeast mm. Asia, are doing. You know, they they tend to undermine, they tend to downplay the risk because of the interest in the economy. 
because of the interest in in, in other aspects that is not related to the the to the uh, health and the safety of the people. So so yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of you know parallel uh, things that we can draw in understanding you know the connection between 311 and a COVID-19 pandemic. And this is something that that will, you know, uh, will uh, will need, uh, I will say, uh, a long-term uh, a process of learning because uh, the situation is 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 very complex uh, uh, in terms of the 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 you know the ability of social institutions in responding to the crisis, uh, the lack of trust of the people in the governments, uh, uh, and not to mention about. Uh, the disagreements between scientists, right, in 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 defining you know the risk of pandemic because you know every almost every day uh, uh, new articles you know uh, published saying that oh okay this you know the virus actually uh, is is transmitted through droplets and and next week oh it is airborne and they, and other weeks in, in in the following weeks they say something else so there's so many. Uh, so many complexities that we have to deal with, and even the scientific communities are having a problem in in uh, making agreements about what really what we really need to do in in in, in overcoming to overcome these you know uh, crisis. And there's so much of value in in what you're describing there, and I just to highlight a couple things that really strike me. One is this continuity of the problem of transparency in a high-tech society and drawing that connection between the what happened at Fukushima and the problem of the pandemic and the problem of communicating uncertainty to the public in the midst of the pandemic, that's a connection which I, I think is very strong. There's something else in what you said, and Ryuma, I want to come to you here in just a second, but the, that, that in some ways 311 was a premonition of these really large-scale events, which we have been told are coming and we shouldn't wait for them to come anymore, they're here. And it just seems that some countries have paid attention to Fukushima in that way. Yeah. I think South Korea may be one of those. Mm -hmm. um, and other countries like the United States literally said, it's not relevant to us. That's not relevant to us. And I think we're seeing the implications of that inability to learn across different kinds of, of disasters in space. Ryuma, I want to ask you, I mean, I guess at a general level, I've learned just about everything I know about Fukushima and uh, Japan itself from the four other people on this call other than myself. And I've learned so much about Fukushima from you, Ryuma. I guess I wanted to give you some time to talk and just reflect on what this anniversary means to you, how the disaster looks different to you today than it did nine years ago or maybe even five years ago. Yeah, thank you for your question and comment. And uh, yeah, these 10 years have passed so quickly, I feel. However, that uh, I also feel that, the, yeah, that already 10 years, but the, just only 10 years. So, so and uh, of course, that uh, there are a lot of efforts by the local residents and the local autonomies and uh, so to reconstruct their daily life and uh, to get back the, the, their daily life. So, and uh, some situation, some part of the situation becoming better and better, I think so. But however, that's, uh, 
some structure issues and the vulnerable situation also remained and uh, some, I think there is uh, some structure ignorance of the such kind of vulnerable issues. So and and uh, however that's the I would like to the uh, mention two point and I would like to say that two point first is that the uh, okay, that's 10 years past, and uh, some people who could not, whether who, who have not speak, as, as who have not spoken uh, for the long time, began to study, start, started to speak something. And this is a very important things to think about the 10 year anniversary of the much event triple disasters. So they studied something, uh, tell something, and they try to the, uh, give a word what they think. And so that they would like to, uh, they write and try to describe the, maybe that part of the between, and they can be, they can tell and they cannot tell. So, so, and such kind of trial is so, uh, important and valuable. And, and we, uh, we, the academic scholars can help and have to contribute to something like us, have to contribute such kind of trial to making the words, um, between the, but they cannot tell and but they can tell. So, so, and uh, I'd like to introduce some very impressive uh, trial to collect such kind of variable and invisible voices and by the sender media text or so such kind of public facilities of the, uh, of the sender. Uh, Sendai city of the Miyagi prefecture. So you know that Miyagi prefecture was the most injured, uh, by tsunami, uh, 10 years ago. So, and I, and uh, the trial of the, uh, Sendai Mediatics set the center for remembering 311, uh, much disaster. And they collected, they have collect the pictures, Voices and uh, narratives uh, from the local residents, and uh, so that's the so very bottom-up community archive to see the reality of this much even triple disasters. And I think the such kind of trials to collect and uh, to make visualize the. Uh, Invisible voices and uh, the daily life of the local residents of the uh, devastated areas. So it's variable to think about what was the March 11 disaster and what was that these 10 years of the local residents who damaged by the triple disasters. And I, and I would like to also say that the, maybe that's, uh, yeah, that's, 10 years ago, uh, 10 years later, uh, 10 years past, and uh, some person finally started to tell something. And maybe that's the also pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, similar situation will be occurs.
so that mm. five years later and ten years later, maybe some person who cannot tell something at the first stage of the pandemic can and will start speak something. So the how to correct and how to and how to such kind of narratives we can make the public commons and uh, common uh, public common goods, something like that. So, and um, such kind of situation will be that tells some what should we do to correct such kind of policies. And that's, it. yeah, this is a lesson from the 311. And, and another point is that, so, yeah, very, maybe that little bit very personal stories. And however, that's that, yeah. Um, for me, that's uh, eight years after this much um, disaster was much more impressed than this 10 years anniversaries. Because that's uh, my, uh, maybe, and uh, yes, Trika and Scott, uh, and Kota and Kyoko, uh, all of us uh, uh, came to my grandfather's house of the Namie town of the Fukushima prefectures. And that's the, my grandfather's house was the, uh, removed <laughs> completely the two years ago. So that's five years late, uh, past timing, timing the past. And uh, at the time that I remember some, how to say, I remember some anger. Uh, so that's the, maybe that's five years, five years uh, of this material disaster. I becoming adapting to the, that situation and some, yeah, uh, I, maybe that I try to the accept and uh, this, that such kind of situations. However, that's the two years ago and when my grandfather's house was removed completely. So, and I uh, felt strong anger and uh, so, uh, and I also that you could match such kind of the emotion and feelings was just very common among the areas, devastated areas and uh, affected by the tsunami and uh, Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant accident. So, and so, so that's, yes, this is the time of the 10, Years anniversaries. However, that's the uh, most impressed timing is, of course, different to according to the individual story and situation yeah. context. So, and uh, yeah, it varies. So, not so difficult thing, but the, I maybe missed, overlooked that such kind of basic things for mm -hmm. a long time. So, and finally, and uh, final point is that the. Uh, yeah, also already Kyoko, uh, what Kyoko said that such kind of out of the collaboration trial and, uh, and many, many the efforts to get back the daily life of the, uh, from the trial. However, that's, this trial is, uh, has been continued under the very serious situation. The fact that the situation is it is that the decrease of social attention and of course, including media attention. So that, of you know, that mass media that try to the broadcast 10th anniversary 
from the match level. However, that's the general level of the media attention on Suran is decreased according to time and already so and they so uh, however that's the such kind of situation uh such kind of the trial uh fat the uh, mentioned and uh, was has been continued and conducted under such kind of the how to say that disadvantage situations and so that public interest uh, becoming and decreasing and decreasing. So, and uh, I would like to emphasize such kind of situations. And thank you for questions. Um, I just, uh, well, there's a lot there in, in what you said, and thank you for sharing all of that. Um, and uh, thank you for taking me to your grandfather's house and yeah, for sharing yeah. that and for sharing that experience. Yeah. And uh, I'm always learning from you. I mean, there's one thing I just learned, which really I'm going to like, I want to immediately use, which is this idea that there's a sort of impulse that we all have. I think it's correct as social scientists, we want to try to capture disasters as they are unfolding and they are variable and complicated. And that's part of our job, I think. But you just introduced a sort of amazing idea that there should be also a space to begin creating an archive many years after the disaster has occurred. That that might actually be the right time to start a new archive. As you said, there'd be some people who haven't spoken in a long time who are now finding it's right to speak. And I'd be fascinated to know how the pandemic, you suggested that maybe even COVID-19 is playing a role in that somehow. Um, let me, um, let me, Kota, let me come to you. I, I just remind everybody, you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking about the pandemic. We're talking about 311. I've kept my guests longer than I said I was going to also, but um, we've covered some quite amazing territory here. And Kota, you are um, you're a real student of the lessons learned rhetoric of disaster, a student and a scholar of it. And I wanna turn that back on you. I mean, what are the lessons now from this vantage point that you've learned mm -hmm. in this scholarship but but then also, I want to know what you think about what lessons the Japanese nuclear industry, or more mm -hmm. broadly, the Japanese government has learned now, 10 years out, or maybe lessons they've forgotten that they knew. Mm -hmm. I think the the biggest lesson to be learned from the, the uh, nuclear disaster, or the 311, the complex disaster, is that to be honest, uh, to deal with the uh, such as the complex uh, technological risks. But uh, in that sense, I think this overlap of the COVID pandemic and the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima uh, disaster, 311 disaster, is not so good in general, I think. So because uh, it's the, uh, the atmosphere of Japanese society is uh, uh, it's a spread of the so-called voluntary restraint 
refrain from something due to pandemic. So that is a very common rhetoric across Japan now. So the, this is the week of the anniversary this week in Japan. But then many, many the uh, ceremonies, uh, the uh, symposiums, and uh, any other citizen event, academic event, are canceled or just uh, moved into online or something. It's it spoiled the the the, the movement uh, of the reflection on the what happened, the what to be learned from the Fukushima, anything. Just a bit, it's very quiet, much more quiet three eleven week than my previous expectation. Of course, I it's very hard time for Japanese people to see the 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 pictures or the videos of a tsunami or the explosion of the power plant or the evacuation and uh, the, to hear the story of the victims and so on. It's too tough. For Japanese people experiencing this uh, uh, difficulty by the uh, COVID pandemic, so the uh, it's not it's a big disadvantage for the, the social learning process uh, for Japan uh, by the the sport by this uh, COVID. Pandemic, so many people are too much depressed by the, this long-standing, never-ending, the uh, emergency situation, and it might create a bad hotbed of cynicism among the people towards uh, such uh, disasters, uh, problems, and uh, uh, any other bad things, risks, and the society. So that is my observation on this point. Just a quick follow-up to you, Kota. Um, the impetus to have a memorial and to treat this anniversary as a as a moment to... Um, I mean, there are memorials that already exist, but but to really treat it as a, as a summation of a memorial experience. And that getting swamped by COVID and just too much sadness, as you pointed out, is a really profound idea. Do you think that means then there's just a deferment uh, that in a, in a sense, three one one is going to continue to wait for a memorialization, or can there? I mean, this was kind of one of the things I wanted to ask you: is is there ever really an end point to this disaster? Is there ever a closure? With what our discussion today, I'm seeing that Fukushima has sort of morphed into this just era of sadness and distrust and lack of transparency, and I don't know how you memorialize that. I don't think that it become the closure of Fukushima. Closure is not boosted by this pandemic, but just suspended in the middle mm. of something. So just that, that it's a continuity of some something temporal. Mm -hmm. So the people just stop to actively vigorously discuss Fukushima due to pandemic, but the people never forget about it. So, but then no the uh, organized reflection on that. And uh, actually, media coverage was uh, uh, occupied by 
COVID issue, economy issue, many, many COVID related issues. So that, that coverage of Fukushima is relatively smaller. So, mm-hmm. and it's not so actively the uh, uh, override uh, the public memory of Fukushima, but just uh, 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 just suspend it or just uh, just add it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That is my feeling. How about the Luma? Yeah, and I agree with the quotas, what Kota said. And yeah, and uh, yeah, I would like to ask. One thing is that uh, yeah, in under this situation, the pandemic is the very becomes the m- most significant interest public in, among the public and the government and so on. And however, that uh, if that such kind of pandemic situation will be better or the solved, however, that after that, and uh, difficulties concerning marginal disaster will be continued after the end of the pandemic, this pandemic, I think so. And the point is that the many problems was the overlooked and uh, demands was discarded and uh, how, how to say the demand the as is. So, and the, and with the same structural issues, uh, under the same structural issues. So, and uh, how to face and uh, describe and face and uh, discuss cons- the future and uh, is really the problem for us, also for us. And so, and uh, anyway, that I agree that with the Kota's ideas and so on. Well, we're, we're up on time here. I did want to um, give Sulfacar and Kyoko a chance. Uh, there's a lot on the table here. Uh, and these, what uh, Kota and Ryuma have been saying, Sulfacar, just any, any reaction you have or anything else you wanted to add before we conclude today? Yeah, uh, last time I went to visit Fukushima was in 2018. Uh, I went there with uh, Dr. Hasegawa, you might know him from my Healing Fukushima documentary film, uh, along with uh, my colleague Lee Shin Lo. Uh, so we went to actually to the ground zero. So he took me to the ground zero, and it, it gives you it gave me another uh, surreal experience because when we we went to the Fukushima Daiichi uh, uh, plant, and it looks completely different. Okay. Uh, when we entered the, the area, what we saw is a really nice, you know, square building, uh, a fancy one, just uh, that looks like an ordinary, you know, office building that you can see in Tokyo, right? Uh, and then when we entered inside the building, uh, everyone seemed to be uh, working uh, uh, in a normal way, right? Uh, no one is wearing uh, or, or, or using, you know, a safety suit. And, uh, and in the corner, I saw uh, a Lawson convenience store. So, uh, and it, it's, it, it's a symbol of uh, uh, a normal life, I guess, you know, and, and, you know, and I guess that's the reason why they put it there. Uh, 
so I, I, I talked to a number of people from TEPCO and they gave information about the radiation uh, measures, uh, radiation protection, etc. But then uh, the, the, my view changed dramatically uh, when uh, uh, TEPCO people uh, uh, took me to the, to the location where the stricken reactors were, you know, uh, uh, were located. And you can see, you know, the, those four, you know, uh, you know uh, stricken reactors were still there. Uh, react and and uh, two of them still producing, you know, radiation. So they cannot really, you know, completely remove it. Right? It's still there. It's, it's, and and that's that's like a, 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 a the opposite view from what you see in the building, in the office building. So mm -hmm. it's like different worlds separated mm -hmm. <laughs> and when when we uh, went to that you know specific area we have to wear the safety suit I took a picture of in you know in front of the uh, unit number one uh, and that really you know gives me some a deep sense of uh, how unlikely for us to completely uh, uh, forget you know uh, what happens in the past especially uh, related to disasters, you cannot really uh, uh, completely erase, you know, the history of disasters. Uh, even, even, even you try very hard to do it, like what you know uh, the Japanese government is trying to do uh, with Fukushima Daiichi. It's still there, uh, mm -hmm. and I think this is something that may apply to any other uh, uh, disasters events, including, of course, the COVID nineteen. Uh, uh, Maybe the the crisis may already pass. It happens you know a long time ago, but there's still this you know perennial pain that you continue to feel, right? And you cannot really you know remove it, uh, forget it uh, completely. No, it's it's always it's always there. It's part of your history. It's part of your uh, of your uh, of public memory, uh, and I think. Uh, uh, a closure, it seemed to be very unlikely. But mm. if you, if, but if you push, if there's any uh, any any way to reach a closure, I think the only way is to admit your mistakes, basically. And I think that's the that's sort of the the, the deep lesson that we need to learn whenever something, you know, uh, happened. Yeah. Kyoko, let me give you the last word, and I just I, I'm really struck by Sulfacar's uh, ethnographic detail of the Lawson's convenience store, which is a not so subtle way to say, "Hey, it's safe here," but then the realization as you round the corner that it's not going to be safe here. Any thoughts, you know, reflecting on the conversation today, or anything else you wanted to add, Kyoko? I'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, so I want to just kind of briefly go back to what Ryuma said about people starting to share their voices now. Um, in my work with survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I constantly meet people who started talking about their experience this year, you know, 75 years later, 74 years later. I, I meet people whose parents were survivors who never shared their experience with their kids. So as children, as a, an adult children, they have to learn about it themselves. So how trauma and then the experience of disaster is not something we can always talk about in the same way. 
And then all they, all we can do is to create the kind of, you know, culture and society where they're more likely to feel like they can get in touch with those thoughts and memories as opposed to being suppressed. And then right now, I think what's very tricky um, that's happening in Fukushima is the uh, idea of radiation and uncertainty of radiation's health effects is really dividing people. And people who wanna, of course, focus on recovery. Let's not really you know, dwell on the danger and risks and stigmatize our homeland. Let's move forward versus people who are staying there still worried about their kids every day, but somehow this kind of like, it's safe narrative is shutting them up. So this kind of, you know, that this is, I think it's really unfortunate if you can't really talk about different opinions and feelings more openly. And I think in smaller communities and the more rural communities, there's a lot of challenges, especially focusing to trying to, you know, the, the recover and the move forward. So we want to be gentle with these complicated situations, but really pay attention to the most vulnerable and the, you know, children, uh, so that they can, you know, speak about their experience and without, you know, worrying about being shut down. Um, one last thing is. Uh, um, I met so many inspiring people, including you all, in researching on these things. So the the the, the sense of solidarity about the people, you know, activists or researchers or whoever, trying to make something out of this terrible disaster. So that always keeps me going when I feel like I just can't anymore. So thank you. And that's a great point to end it on. And, and I just want to um, make sure that uh, everybody knows you've been listening to COVID calls today in a special episode talking about the Japanese experience of COVID, but also the 10th anniversary of the 311 Fukushima disaster. And Kyoko Sato is a co-editor of a volume that will be out uh, relatively soon, I think, Living in a Nuclear World from Fukushima to Hiroshima. And uh, Sulfacar has made two films, uh, Journey to Namie and Healing Fukushima. And then Ryuma and I collaborated with many other authors and co-editor uh, Kyle Cleveland and as well as uh, Kota on uh, Legacies of Fukushima 311 in Context, which will be coming out in just a couple of months. So I hope that if listeners want to know more about what the thinkers in this call um, are working on and the, the, the things they have to contribute to the conversation, um, that they'll check out those documents. And Sulfacar, you may also have publications additional to uh, the films. Would you like, if you do, would you like to mention? I, I don't want to overlook if you. Yeah, it is actually one of my ambitions. So I'm, I'm working on this in a book manuscript on Fukushima, trying to understand, yeah. uh, you know, uh, what happened before the disaster. So yeah, okay. uh, it's been moving very slow. So I don't know when it's going to. Well, but as we heard today in this conversation, I don't think that's slow at all. We're going to need scholarship at many different temporal paces as well. What an honor to be with you for today. And thank you for sharing this time. I want to remind everyone that you can catch COVID calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time, except for when you catch it at 5 p.m. Korea time. Uh, and we're going to have many more of those kinds of conversations coming up in the next few months. Stay healthy, everybody. We will see you on Tuesday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. 